Welcome to another episode of Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yi, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today, our guest is Ellie Nadivi, professor of neurobiology at MIT. We'll be speaking about structural plasticity of inhibition, screening for plasticity genes, and her running buddies at Stanford. All this and more coming up. We're here with Ellie Ndivi, a professor of neurobiology at MIT. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Ndivi. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we've met before, um, and so I'm really excited to get to talk to you again and hear about your latest research, um, which has been really exciting in the past few years. So usually we like to get started with your background. I think this is really great for audiences to know about. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and um, whether or not you were interested in science as a kid? So um, I'm originally from Israel, and I mostly grew up in Israel, but my dad was in the foreign office, and so we actually traveled a lot as kids, mm -hmm. and um, I went to elementary school in New York, so, so I was in the U.S. before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not sure I was interested in science as a kid, even though I definitely gravitated more towards the... Uh, you know, sciences than the arts. Mm -hmm. um, but I had the most amazing biology teacher in high school. And um, I think that she converted me, basically. And after, after um, being in her classes, I thought, wow, this is just amazing. And I also think that that was when I became interested in neuroscience. I always knew that I wanted to go into science from mm -hmm. then and mm -hmm. that it really had to be the brain. I see, I see. What what about her was so charismatic or, or made her think that this was really interesting, made you think? Um, because I think that she really um, didn't teach it in a classic textbook way, but it was that she took stuff out of, like, newspapers in terms of what was current knowledge and new discoveries. For example, I remember that it was when people first started using amno amniocentesis and for doing genomic testing. And we talked about that in class. And I thought, wow, this is like unbelievable that people can do that. And, um, and so, um, so that was one example that I remember. But I think that that was sort of her style. And so it made it very real and also very interesting. Yeah, she makes it sound like some, she made it sound very relevant to be doing science or be reading about exactly. science. Exactly. Yes. That's really cool. Um, and so after that, so you kind of knew you were interested in science. And then you went back. Did you do your undergraduate back in Israel? Or? I did. I did. So we went back to and I did my high school and I went to the army in Israel and then I did my undergraduate there, and I was a biology major, and I concentrated in biochemistry, and I thought, you know, it, that even whatever you needed to understand, you really had to take it down to the basic cellular I see. Uh, level. I see. So um, that's why biochemistry. Yes, yeah. and I was also recruited into a, a very good biochemistry lab mm -hmm. um, as oh. an undergrad. Yeah. That was Michael Schramm's lab, I think? Yes, yes. Yeah. So he would have his graduate students kind of scout out <laughs> <laughs> from the bio undergrads because uh -huh. they would TA the the biochem lab. I and see. So, um, so one of my TAs was in his lab and I see. kind of recruited me into the lab and <laughs> his technician left on maternity leave and I ended up doing all the cults, um, you know, the 
sterile work and the tissue mm. culture and I basically got sucked in. I see. So they were just looking for the people who seemed really into it and would be excited about this, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And and at that time was there a chance to do neuroscience in an undergraduate or did you kind of like think that okay, maybe I'll save that for later? You know, there were there are very good neuroscience people um in Jerusalem, but in general actually even when I went to graduate school, molecular um, and biochemical methods in the nervous system um, we're, we're kind of a minority. And so, for example, at the Hebrew University, there wasn't really any molecular neuro lab. And um, even when I came for graduate school at Stanford, there was really just Eric Schuter and Pate in our department doing molecular neuro. And I, I knew I wanted to even though I wanted to go into neuro, I really wanted the grounding of the biochemistry and molecular biology. And so I, I went into, Mickey was just an unbelievable biochemist. And mm-hmm. I feel like protein chemistry is almost the most rigorous training. Yeah, yeah, have. yeah. Um, and something you really have to practice over and over, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, Okay. And as you said, you actually came out here to Stanford. So you're actually a Stanford alum of our very own um, neuroscience program here. Um, and that's yes. where, as you said, <laughs> you started studying uh, molecular neuroscience. And as you said, there were only a few labs doing that at that time. And so you were in JH, uh, what do you usually call it? I call it Pate. Pate. Pate scheme, yeah. which yeah. I, I I read that he recently actually just finished his law degree at Duke. So he he like... always had very widespread interests. Yeah, it sounds like a not just science. Yeah, yeah, he is kind of a renaissance. <laughs> and we were just I just wondered, do you have a favorite memory of your time here at Stanford as a student? You know, I have to say that my time as a student at Stanford mm-hmm. was one of the best times in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember very fondly. I feel both professionally, it was kind of quantal development. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just huge. And um, the other thing is that I had really, really good friends there who were mm-hmm. my classmates who are all professors in other places now. So mm-hmm. my best friends and my running buddies at Stanford were Sue McConnell, who was actually oh, a postdoc yeah. when I was a graduate student. Oh, wow. And Sasha Dulac, who is on the faculty at Hopkins, mm-hmm. and Diane O'Dowd, who I think is now assistant provost at mm-hmm. Irvine. Mm-hmm. And um, they were just a little bit ahead of me, but we had right. a little running group, and I felt yeah. it was both fun and I learned so much from them. Right, right, right. That's a wonderful And Carla was on my thesis. Uh, <laughs> I heard she's actually... <laughs> she was a junior faculty. Yeah. This is so before... Doing very well. Right. This is, is this yeah. before she went to Boston and came back? Or she... Uh, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. I heard she's a pretty tough committee member. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So then you did your PhD here, as you said, in molecular neuroscience. And then for your postdoc, you actually went again back to Israel and back to the Wiseman Institute, um, where you worked with uh, Yoav... Is that how you say his name? Yoav Sitri? Yes. Um, I've actually met his younger brother was a postdoc uh, in the neighboring lab to mine. So it's a family of scientists. And Yoav had actually done his PhD with your undergraduate mentor, Michael Schramm. Did you know him before? Is there a reason why you decided to go back? Um, yes, I did. I, so he, I was an undergrad in the lab and he was a senior graduate student. And while I was an undergrad, he, kind of after I was there for a year or two, he went off to do his postdoc at the Whitehead. Mm-hmm. We were all like super impressed with him. <laughs> he was like, he was really very smart. And uh-huh. when I was, um, I actually ran into him at the SFN meeting 
just before I graduated when I was looking around for postdocs, and I was looking both in the U.S., mm-hmm. mostly in the U.S., actually, and I met Yoav, and he said, why don't you come back to Israel? And I said, well, you know, uh, I'm not sure I want to go back. Um, but it was, temp- he said, oh, you know, we have these great fellowships. The-. And he said, oh, so why don't you just come for a month or two to my lab and try it out? You can always go back. Ah. <laughs> and The same um, recruitment techniques <laughs> that was of those graduate <laughs> <Yes>. students. <laughs> so, so actually, I did uh, go back and I applied for a couple of fellowships. I got both of them for, um, you know, Israeli fellowships. And you know, it was nice. My family was there. I'd been mm-hmm. away for a long time. And um, and Yav really was a really unbelievably fabulous molecular biologist. And mm-hmm. they were doing these differential screening techniques that not many people were doing at that level of sophistication. Right. Um, and so I realized that when I was there. And I mm-hmm. also kind of what I was trying out as a potential project, mm-hmm. like within a couple of months, we could tell it was going to work. So. I see. I see. So um, why, why drop it when you knew it was going well? Um, yeah, so I, I yeah. got hooked. Yeah, that's awesome. And so maybe to go into a little more detail about the work you did, because it was quite a project. Um, so while you were there, you actually launched a screen for so-called candidate plasticity genes. Um, and in this screen, as you said, you were using a lot of molecular techniques. So here you were actually cloning uh, cDNAs, so complementary DNAs, uh, that were expressed in canate-treated dentite gyrus. So basically you took a, a region of the hippocampus and treated it with these mGluR uh, agonists, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, you took all those cDNAs, clone them, put them into plasmids, and we're running them on parallel gels and probing for the differences between the two. And this is a very specific technique that is kind of a massive undertaking. Maybe could you tell us why you were using this specific approach? So apparently there were other kind of differential hybridization and subtraction approaches at the time. And why go through this more difficult method? Yeah, so um, so the method was actually the, the way that people were screening at the time is they were making phage or plasmid libraries and mm-hmm. then screening them by differential screens. And um, in those kinds of screens, there were two issues. One, which is that in order to make the libraries, you would use amplification. And the mm-hmm. other thing is because you're screening the phage, the amount of DNA on the blot is really tiny. And mm-hmm. so the sensitivity is really low. And so when people use those techniques, they actually are looking really only at the 3 to 5% most abundant species. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And what we did is we made subtracted libraries and we that were phagemid libraries. And then mm-hmm. we rescued the plasmids as individual clones and ran the DNA directly on a blot. So the sensitivity was orders of magnitude higher. Mm-hmm. And basically, you could see every single cDNA and score it as activated or non-activated. I see. So it's not just that you were seeing only the most abundant species. And so I think it was the comprehensiveness was unprecedented. And I actually still think that even current techniques mm-hmm. are not as good. It's just that people are not willing to do that. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's the kind of molecular biology that you can do really in, only in a, in a very hardcore molecular lab. I see, I see. Um, what are some of the current techniques that would be comparable, that, like, for example? Um, you know, well, people use uh, chip screens mm-hmm. and, um, you know, differential displays. So the, the disadvantage, the differential display is also not very sensitive. The chip mm-hmm. screens are basically are not gene discovery because you mm-hmm. discover what you put on the 
chip, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, That's true. It's a limited pool, right? Yeah, and I think that RNA-seq has the advantage of not having amplification issues, and Mm -hmm. it's very comprehensive, but Mm -hmm. in the end, you know, you still have to clone it afterwards, even if you identify what, you know, Mm -hmm potential transcript and I also think in the brain because things are really there is a lot of alternative splicing and different promoters the Mm -hmm. RNA-seq data on its own is sometimes hard to piece together in terms of what is the transcript right it takes full transcript that's being made right it takes some heavy computational methods to kind of figure that out. yes and verification yeah I see I see whereas in the approach and mapping and stuff like that yeah right and the approach you had, you already had the clones ready to go exactly, once you, right. once you identified yeah. it. So, so you had this huge screen. I mean, just and just to give people a sense. So, obviously, it was a more sensitive technique. How how long did this take? Take you know what kind of the so the it took us kind of a couple years. But I have to say, I say this to people in my lab in general in terms of getting things to work. That we screen. It took us a year to screen the first five thousand clones, uh-huh. and then this the Second year, we did another 5,000. Oh, yeah, so we did, sorry, we did the first 1,000 clones in a mm-hmm. year, and then mm-hmm. the second year, we did 5,000, mm-hmm. and then we did another 5,000 during the summer. Oh, wow. With two undergrads. <laughs> so I think that once you streamline it, yeah. you know, and you, you, you know, titrate everything, mm-hmm. things kind mm-hmm. of work Come better. But, oh. um, uh-huh. but yes, but we actually published the first paper. Mm-hmm. after the first thousand because mm-hmm. it was already very revealing. Right, right. And uh, you would come back to this data set later on in your own work, um, which I'll get back to in a, in a minute. Yes, yeah. So, you know, the screen is kind of the first step. I mm-hmm. mean, you have to really, um, especially when so many of the genes are unknowns, mm-hmm. and those were actually some of the most intriguing ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a huge bottleneck after a screen is mm-hmm. figuring out what the genes do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Which is what I ended up trying Doing, to do. Right. Yes. Um, uh, one quick question about the actual uh, treatment that the screen was. So the treatment was induced by these this uh, mGluR agonist, which is a treatment that actually, the reason why you chose this is a treatment that very much activates the dentate gyrus um, and actually causes... It's a, it's a basically a seizure paradigm, yes. I just was wondering, if you were to redo such a screen today, are there more LTP-like protocols you might try, for example, NMDA treatments? Or do you think this was probably the best approach at the time or even now for for such a screen? You know, at the time we were worried about this, but I think that in the end it's become validated because people have gone back with more specific screens. And the Mm -hmm. idea was actually to identify any gene that had the potential to be turned on by activity and also because it was synchronized, all the cells were doing it at the same time. Mm -hmm. So again, it increased the signal to noise, Mm -hmm. which is always important in a differential screen. Mm -hmm. But I think that everything that later got shown to be activated by any sort of more physiological, like visual mm-hmm. inputs by LTP, mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, electrostimulation, all that, all those genes were in our pool. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it ended up being a very all-inclusive pool. And then mm-hmm. we went on and selected from those ones sure. that had very specific um, right. characteristics. Right. And when we talk about your work in the later, uh, later on, it'll definitely prove that point. All right. So you published that huge paper, as you said, after the first, what was it, 10,000 genes? Uh, uh, a thousand. thousand yeah. A thousand genes, which still sounds like a large number. Sadly, actually, though, uh, Yoav Sitri passed away in 1995, unexpectedly. Yeah. 
And that was, I guess, just a few years after you published that paper. Uh, yeah. So you were still in the lab at that time? Actually, I had, I was still at the Weizmann, but at the time, Soyov was not in the neuro department. And the neuro department initially wanted to offer me a job, and I had actually moved physically over to that department. I see. see. And so I was still around, and I was finishing up our second paper. Mm -hmm. But I think even before that second paper came out, Yoav Mm -hmm. was not there. Yeah. 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 And how did you figure out what to do next, though, instead of staying at the Wiseman? Well, the the Wiseman were kind of not very... um, you know, the whole job thing was kind of a little bit up in the air. Mm-hmm. And um, and I you know I got part of my startup. It wasn't clear that it was going to happen. And mm-hmm. and I think that also you get spoiled doing science in the U.S. <laughs> and, and even though initially I could see myself staying in Israel, I think that mm-hmm. after being there, mm-hmm. I really wanted to come back to the U.S. Yeah. And I did, even before um, I moved from Yoav's lab, my kind of discussion with Yoav had been that we would each take the entire gene set, but I was more interested in looking at plasticity and development, and he was more interested in looking at disease. Mm-hmm. And so we, the idea would be that we would each have the same gene set, but do different things with it. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my plan going out of his lab, and that didn't really change, mm-hmm. except that people didn't follow up on his aspect. Unfortunately, so, right, right. Yes. Um, so after that, you did come back to the States, as you said, um, to Cold Spring Harbor. Um, and you were working, were you in the lab of Hollis Klein or just? You know, I was. And uh-huh. one of the reasons I went to Cold Spring Harbor, though, is that they have these kind of semi-independent positions. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of had a plan already and mm-hmm. I had something that I wanted to start my lab with. And right. I didn't want to do another postdoc. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing was that I was already looking for some sort of system where we could look at what the genes do in vivo, where we could put our genes in and out and see the effect. And interestingly, when we actually look at the pool as a whole of all 360 candidate genes that we identified, a large number of them seems to affect uh, structure, anything that you would need to remodel a circuit. And so it meant that when we were looking at their function, we needed some sort of morphological readout in vivo. And ju- just to back up a minute, why why did you infer that they would affect uh, structure? All you had was the gene sequence at that point, or had right? You- but a lot of yes, but a lot of them had hits on things in the databases that were homologous or in other cell types or certain types of proteins. So we were seeing a lot of growth factors, cytokines, extracellular matrix components, cytoskeletal association associated protein. So really sort of molecular building blocks of circuit remodeling. That makes sense. Right. So yeah. proteins that typically affect structure and morphology. Right, right, right. Right. And and so yeah, just to hit on this system thing, I think at that point you'd already had a small paper showing that one of your candidate plasticity genes, CPG fifteen, what was in the rodent visual cortex, um, and it was regulated by light exposure. So in animals that had been in the dark and then suddenly exposed to light, you could see its upregulation, I think. But then you went to Cold Spring Harbor and you started working in Xenopus, which I don't think you work in the system anymore. But what was the draw there? Why did you go to the Xenopus tectum or the brainstem visual area? 
So, so it's true that, you know, the second paper was really kind of the subscreen of the pool to pick out who would be the most interesting. Uh-huh. And CPG-15 was interesting because of its various expression patterns and its regulation by, you know, visual stimulation, things like that. But, mm-hmm. but at the time, when I came to Cold Spring Harbor, people weren't imaging in vivo in mice. I see. And Holly's system in the Xenopus was really the only one where you could put genes in and out mm-hmm. and see how it affects neuronal morphology in the intact animal. Mm-hmm. And so that was very attractive. Holly said to me, I said, I'm not going to clone everything in Xenopus now. And Holly <laughs> said, oh, all the Xenopus stuff works and uh, all the mouse stuff and human stuff and rat stuff right. all works in Xenopus. I see. And, um, and also Cold Spring Harbor, I could get an appointment where they paid me directly, so I mm. could be in Holly's lab, but I didn't have to work on her projects. I see, I see. And so, so it, it was a great confluence of opportunity. Good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it was, it was also, it was a very good move professionally. And while I was there, Carl Svoboda came, and that was when people were just starting to do the mouse imaging. Right, right. And so... Uh, and that will kind of color your future, too. <laughs> right, exactly. So when I got my own lab, I decided, okay, no more need. Yeah. <laughs> the Xenopus. No, I think that it's an amazing system uh-huh. and precedes the mouse stuff in many right, ways. Right, right. I think that as soon as I could do it in mouse, mm-hmm. I switched back, and that was when I started my own lab. Right. Um, and just to summarize, what you had, you did actually find in Xenopus, which was an important thing, was that so you used viral methods to actually overexpress CB- CPG uh, fifteen um, right. in those tectal projection neurons. And can you just tell us quickly what you found there? So we found that CPG fifteen acted as an extracellular ligand, and mm-hmm. it and promoted dendritic arbor growth and stabilization. Right. So and maturation. Right. So I saw some of these camera lucida drawings of those uh, neurons, and they just have these huge dendritic arbors when they overexpress. Yes, they become really, really huge um, if you give them enough CPG-15, which also suggests that what happens developmentally is that Mm -hmm. the CPG-15 at some point becomes limiting Mm -hmm. um, to growth, and that's how you kind of control the size Mm -hmm. of these neurons. And also kind of, I guess, by analogy to the fact that um, you kind of knew something about these proteins. So you actually found in those studies, I think when you sparsely um, infected CPG-15, so it was only in a few, but not all of the neurons. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, all the neurons were affected. And so what did you infer from those experiments? Yeah, so again, I, I have to say that that was one of our re- the reasons we picked CPG-15, and that's why we actually did this experiment, is that CPG-15 we knew had a signal sequence. Mm-hmm. And we also knew that it was attached to the cell surface through a GPI ligand because, mm-hmm. again, it had a consensus for that. Mm-hmm. So we were suspecting that it might be an extracellular signaling molecule. Mm-hmm. And so those experiments where we showed that it was non-cell autonomous mm-hmm. kind of verified that it was actually acting in mm-hmm. that way. So in a way it was predicted, um, which is exciting. Yeah, but you know, you still have to prove something. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so it's nice to see. All right, so just kind of speeding ahead to the future. So as you already mentioned, you know, um, suddenly imaging was possible in the mouse um, in, a, in, a, in a good way. And so when you started your own lab in 1998 at MIT, not only did you decide to follow up on CPGs from that early screen, such as you had already started doing, um, but you started to incorporate chronic in vivo two-photon, multi-photon imaging into your work, in part through a collaboration with a, another lab at uh, MIT, the SO Lab. 
Um, and so you've had a series of papers in, in the more recent years, uh, many with your student Jerry Chen, in which you've looked at the world of not just structural plasticity, but uh, Gabrogic synapse structural plasticity in particular. So first of all, it sounds like you would have just kind of gone along and tested all the different CPGs with excitatory plasticity, um, especially given that actually in those Xenopus studies, um, I, I think interneurons were not affected by CPG15. Yes. Oh, you caught that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so why suddenly study inhibition? What, where did this come from? Yeah, so I, I think that's kind of an example of you go where the science takes you. And even though we develop the imaging as a platform for looking at our gene function, mm-hmm. and I have to say part of my lab is still molecular and still mm-hmm. looking at some of the candid plasticity genes. And in fact, and I do have a postdoc who's imaging in the CPG15 knockout, which mm. is super interesting mm-hmm. but and very powerful. But when we started imaging, as you said, I collaborated with Peter So, who's a mechanical engineer here and an optics expert. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the awesome things about MIT is we have mm-hmm. these amazing engineers <laughs> here. And in fact, I've been collaborating with him um, almost since I got here when mm-hmm. we started setting things up. And because of the way we set up our imaging, which was a little different than the way other people were doing it, we fell over data that was just very rich. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that, you know, when you look at your knockouts, you first have to characterize the baseline. And it turns mm-hmm. out that the baseline was totally uncharacterized. I see. And we kind of fell over this idea. I mean, Svoboda and people ha- that had been imaging spines had mm-hmm. shown that spines change in the adult and are plat and can you know, dynamically rearranged, but Mm -hmm. the consensus was that the dendrites were actually stable, that the circuits themselves in terms of wiring, maybe, except for synaptic changes, were Mm -hmm. were not really changing. Mm -hmm. And when we started imaging, because we weren't biased towards the excitatory neurons that were spiny, Mm -hmm. we actually realized that the inhibitory neurons actually were still dynamic and were remodeling in the adult. So that made us realize that the inhibitory circuitry was was much more plastic. Mm -hmm. And um, and that was actually my first student, Wei Tung Lee, who who did all of that work. And, and And because I work with Peter and he's very interested in the technology development, We've always been able to be kind of a step ahead. And first, we were the first ones to do the large volume imaging, which was what allowed us to see what the inhibitory neurons were doing. And then we started doing the two-color imaging, which allowed us doing to do synaptic labeling and imaging in vivo. Now, Just pause for a moment. So what yeah. is this large volume imaging? You just had a larger chunk of tissue you could look through. Yeah, so, so we... You know, I think that I was influenced by Holly in the sense that in the Xenopus, when you're imaging in the optic tectum, you can see the entire neuron. Mm -hmm. And you can see what all the dendrites are doing at once. And so you don't just have this little view of a small segment of a dendrite that you don't really quite know what cell it belongs to and Mm -hmm. where it is on the cell. Mm -hmm. And so when I started imaging in mice with Peter's help, you know, I said to him, I really want to be able to image a large volume because the cortical neurons are huge. Yeah. And so you have to be able to scan three, a 300 by 300 micron cube, more or less, to see the entire cell. Yeah. And when you're doing two photon imaging, you're scanning each point in the volume, right, mm-hmm. separately. Mm-hmm. So it takes a little time. And um, I didn't want to lose the resolution of the single synaptic. 
or I spine I size. And, and so it's this difference that let you look at the inhibitory Yes, yeah, so the fact that we were looking across a big volume. Mm-hmm. And the reconstructions were also much more difficult. Because so. otherwise speaking, I, I don't know, should I be surprised that people, you know, wouldn't think that inhibit, I mean, a lot of people talk about inhibition gaining plasticity, but... You know, but that was, that was now, that's now. Yeah. I feel like yeah. uh, when we fell over the inhibition stuff, not that many people were mm-hmm. thinking about inhibition in, in, in relation to plasticity mm-hmm. or in relation to, you know, everybody was imaging pyramidal neurons because yeah. everybody thought they're 80% of the population. That's where it's at. That must be you important because they're the majority, yes, right? Yes. Minority doesn't have that much control. So now everybody yeah. says, oh, yeah, inhibition, everybody's all over it. But yeah. at the time, it was unexpected. And um, it was, I think, lucky that we were there early. And just to get into more of the meat of what, what you guys had found. So in one of the big papers that you had on this topic of interneuron kind of structural plasticity, mm-hmm. you were looking at the branch tips of interneurons. So this is both, right. I guess, the axons as well as the dendrites, basically the whole neuron and, and all of its projections. And you saw that they had these strikingly layer-specific and then therefore probably function-specific um, patterns of retraction and elongation. Um, I know that's kind of a, it was a lot of findings there, but could you maybe briefly explain what you found there? And also, especially the one about um, floxetine and its effect on, the, on that kind of plasticity. So the the thing that was really, you know, striking to us is that we were seeing first of all this remodeling of dendrites and and these dendrites actually carry synapses. So it means that there was actually changes to the wiring and you know, but the numbers were not huge. They were not really different from what people see as spine, you know, remodeling in terms of percent of the arbor, but uh but people were saying, "Oh, maybe that's some stochastic change." It's yeah. not really physiologically relevant, but when we actually did um, deprivation studies and we did monocular and binocular deprivation, we saw that the effects were really different depending on the deprivation protocol, and they were also very laminar specific, that the areas that were changing were really kind of circuit specific and also different Um, Mm -hmm. and one of the things that was interesting is that when we did the deprivation we saw that there was an increased dynamics but that the first burst of dynamics was retractions and since these are inhibitory dendrites we said what does that mean for the circuit and we thought well probably it means there's less output because they're losing drive Um, and then we look at the axons and indeed we saw they were also losing boutons and so we thought, well, what would be that would be what would that be doing to the excitatory neurons? And we said, well, they're probably being disinhibited because there's a retraction of the inhibitory inputs right. from them. Overall net change. Overall, yeah. right. And so that suggested that one of the first things that happens when you have a deprivation is a disinhibition of the system. Mm-hmm. And you know, what that does is that it is permissive for plasticity because it kind of broadens the window for spike timing dependent plasticity Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that then only after you have new synapses formed that are driven by the non-deprived eye Mm -hmm. you kind of have the closing of that window Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the reason we tried fluoxetine is because it had been shown to actually have a disinhibitory function Mm -hmm. and so we thought maybe we could kind of mimic the effect of the deprivation Mm -hmm. and get remodeling happening faster if we Mm -hmm. treated with fluoxetine Mm -hmm. and um, and that was indeed what we saw yeah 
So, but what was interesting is that you still needed the input of the non-deprived eye. Mm-hmm. So I guess the news, good news for that is that, uh, <laughs> that uh, you know, Prozac is good for plastic, <laughs> but that it, uh, you actually need kind of a salient input. I see. To guide what kind of plasticity. So good news in being that there's actually a malleability to the effects of these kinds of right, drugs, right? right. Yes. Um, which would be important. Was there any kind of reaction to that paper because of the fluoxetine results, or is it pretty um, much? You know, so I think that there was also work that um, previously from Lombardo Maffei's lab showing mm-hmm. that you could increase uh, visual system plasticity with mm-hmm. fluoxetine, mm-hmm. but I think that the discovery was more that that the underlying mechanism be- mm-hmm. was probably because of its effect on mm-hmm. you know an arbor and um, synaptic remodeling mm-hmm. of inhibitory neurons right. right and another question I had about this all of this is um, as you said nowadays uh, people are very much into interneuron diversity and how many different types there are and what their mm-hmm. distinct circuit mm-hmm. functions are so in your paper you're more emphasizing okay inhibitory neurons some of their arbors change depending on the layer which could be an output layer an input layer has the different function in the circuit but you know, given different identities of the interneurons themselves. In your paper, I think all those interneurons were identified basically in morphology. Were they smooth? Do they have smooth right, dendrites right. or not? Are you now looking back, like, at all surprised that you guys could find such consistent dynamics when you were grouping all these neurons together? Or do you think there was there more distinction there? Than, than... Well, I think we lucked out. And we actually had a later, uh, 98, was it 98? Um, we had a PNAS paper mm. um, later that where we actually looked at the molecular identity of the I interneuron see. types that we were that we were imaging mm. and what we actually found which was very interesting is that it wasn't really the lineage or the type of interneuron but mm. where it was located in the circuit I that see. predicted whether it would remodel or not Hmm. So all types of interneurons within the superficial 100 microns of layer 2, 3 remodel. Hmm. And so, so you know, because they all behave in the same yeah. way, <laughs> we're lucky that, uh, that, look, that pretty much within that region. And after we realize that, then that's been where we've been imaging. I see. I see. I guess if you're restricted enough, the plasticity might still be the same. Uh, another interesting thing about inhibitory neurons that I – first of all, I was thinking that um, – so, I mean, you guys are some of the first and only to have studied structural plasticity of interneurons, partly because of techno- technological um, reasons, as you um, alluded to. But also there's this thing where, you know, people have always paid attention to spines, these very prominent, you know, uh, protrusions on excitatory neurons and synapses of excitatory neurons. But, you know, inhibitory synapses are not always spiny or at- located at spines. Um, do you think that's a reason, one reason maybe why people have not focused on it? And, yeah, maybe you can just explain this a little bit, what the well, problem Actually, you know, um, before we started, so at first we started by looking at inhibitory neurons, and then we started saying, well, we actually kind of want to see how they're impacting the excitatory cells, and we started labeling inhibitory synapses on um, excited on pyramidal cells. And, you know, the textbook when I was going to school was that inhibitory synapses are shaft synapses, while mm-hmm. excitatory synapses are spine synapses. Mm-hmm. And that was what we assumed Mm -hmm. and but once we started labeling inhibitory synapses i think one of the really important findings of our neuron paper in 2012 was that 
about 30% of inhibitory synapses are actually on spines. Right. And these spines are duly innervated by both an excitatory and an inhibitory synapse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even though there had been some anecdotal reports of duly innervated spines, I think people sort of ignored them computationally hmm. in terms of what inhibition does mm-hmm. at the cellular level. But once we saw that they were 30% of the population, and in fact, they were the most dynamic portion of the synaptic population, then it kind of necessitated rethinking what they might be doing. And I think that when an inhibitory synapse is on a spine, that excitatory synapse almost haven't, has like an individual switch on, switch off by taking on and off that inhibitory synapse, while uh, inhibitory shaft synapses are not really individual to one synapse, but they tend to influence a dendritic segment. I see. Um, and they behave differently also in terms of their dynamics. So that suggests that you know the inhibitory population actually at the cellular level is really two populations that mm-hmm. serve different roles and mm-hmm. and respond differently to activity. Mm-hmm. All right. So so I remember from that paper, you actually you had a clever way of, of you had a Geffrin tag, which is like basically the postsynaptic molecule of inhibitory neurons. And you had found that actually, so these synapses actually have different distributions over the cell. Is that right? Right. So it looks like the duly innervated spines that mm-hmm. carry both an excitatory and an inhibitory synapse are much denser on the apical tuft. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that suggests that that's a region where the individuality of the excitatory synapse is is much more important and Mm -hmm. they need to kind of have individual control, Mm -hmm. potentially that's different from what is going on in other parts of the arbor. And And that's, again, I think an illustration of the power of being able to see the entire cell. Right, right. Of being able to see that there's actually things are are much more subtle, right? Right. You know, than you know you might expect mm-hmm. if you're just looking at individual segments here and there. Sure. And any idea if these different types of synapses come from different interneuron subtypes? The shaft well, we're looking spine. at that. Of yeah. course, that's our favorite. Idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, I feel like you know, I, I every time I go over data with my students, yeah, I'm sort of I love this project because every time we look, it's like not what I expected, <laughs> and so my feel, even though we haven't finished this comprehensively, even mm-hmm. though it was my favorite idea, it doesn't. It looks like interneurons in general, in terms of connectivity, are much more promiscuous than. Mm-hmm people you know are used to thinking about uh-huh. so, uh-huh. so I, i'm afraid that might not be the case actually right. even though i like that idea but i think that this idea of what you were suggesting which is something that we, we're really interested in and in looking at now is that even we're sort of now divvying this up excitatory versus inhibitory but really both the inhibitory and the excitatory input population could be much more diverse than you know than we're able to resolve in terms of the tools that we're using now. Mm. And just to bring it around full circle, back to the CPGs, I just had to ask, <laughs> since this kind of motivated this foray into structural plasticity, but now you're doing GABAergic cells. Are any of the yeah, CPGs so actually expressed one of in GABAergic cells? My students has this project, which... It's not fully developed, but she actually went back to the pool and she screened specifically for CPGs that seem to have an effect on inhibitory neurons directly. And there's definitely a large segment of them that have an effect on structure of both excitatory mm-hmm. and inhibitory neurons and some more so on inhibitory neurons. Mm-hmm. So 
to be continued. So hopefully she can follow up on some of this. <laughs> and so with that, can you actually give us a preview of your upcoming talk? I th I'll probably talk just about the imaging stuff in my lab and maybe talk about some new work that we're doing where we've incorporated additional colors where we're able to look both at excitatory synapses independent of spines and the inhibitory synapses and looking at much shorter sure. time intervals where we're actually looking at synapse dynamics of synapse formation and elimination um, in vivo, which mm -hmm. I think is something that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people haven't actually looked at yet. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to that. We usually like to end with a couple of what we call rapid fire questions. So I'll just ask three brief questions and just say whatever comes to the top of your mind. All right. So the first question is, um, if you could speak to yourself, and I mean yourself, Ellie, as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? You know, do what you think is super cool. <laughs> And I, th and I think that's true at every stage in your career because there are many aspects that are tough and you have to be super excited and motivated about it. Good advice. Um, second question, as a Stanford alum, what one place would you like to revisit on campus? Uh, maybe the dish. <laughs> the dish. Beautiful. And luckily it's still there, unlike many buildings. Um, <laughs> Uh, hopefully it will be sunny. Um, all right. And the third question is, what single question in neuroscience are you dying to know the answer to? Hmm. You know, um, I, I, I feel one. like it's not really a single question. I think that our knowledge of how circuits are put together and the subtleties of the connectivity are is just like so, you know, abysmal <laughs> I mean I really know nothing and I, I feel like it would be very cool if we could understand you know for a single neuron um, what the flavor in terms of function is of all the inputs and how they mm. get kind of computed and integrated into an output and thank you all for listening we hope you'll join us for a new set of speakers next week, where our first guest will be Virginia Lee, Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and Co-Director of the Center for Neurodegenerative Research at UPenn School of Medicine. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, David Lipton, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, Ada Yee. Adam Huchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience, by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org. This is NeuroTalk, and I'm you.